Hey, podcast listeners, welcome to this week's uh, rerun encore edition of the podcast. Today's guest is Harold Batiste, and we'll get to that in just a minute. A couple things I want to tell you. One, the first thing is, I don't know if you got a chance to listen to Mark Maron's interview with uh, President Barack Obama on his podcast, WTF. It was fantastic. Just a great conversation. I really enjoyed it on a million levels. And it kind of reminded me, uh, somebody was criticizing my interview with last week uh, with author Cherie Homer. And I thought, you know, I enjoyed it partly because I just enjoy hearing any two people talk. I want to hear people's stories, even if they're not famous or if they're not full of drama, etc. Uh, really, last week, just for her her Wisconsin accent alone, that, that for me, that was worth it. But uh, So if you're a fan of conversations... Or, or the content, uh, check out this interview with Barack Obama. It was really fascinating, unlike anything I'd, 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 I've heard. Uh, I want to remind you also, there's some great interviews coming up. Johnny Farina, who was half of Santo and Johnny. They had a number one hit in 1959 with Sleepwalk. He'll be here. Rick Hall from Muscle Shoals, Alabama's Fame Studios will be here. He's written a new book. He's 83 years old. It's called The Man from Muscle Shoals, My Journey from Shame to Fame. And I've just started it and Boy, he his life was poor. Can you hear my daughter's piano lesson upstairs? She's practicing piano. Maybe you can hear that. Uh, author Wyndham Wallace, he's written a book about uh, his relationship with Lee Hazelwood. And then finally, Kim Shattuck from one of my favorite bands, The Muffs, will be here. Their 1993 self-titled debut album is being re-released with bonus tracks and We'll talk about that. So you can get the dates on all of those over at WFMU.org slash Michael. Now, this is from 2009. Harold Batiste, big New Orleans music maker. Interesting story. Uh, He's one of these guys kind of hard to reach. Well, I'm going to let I'm going to stop talking and, and, and play you the original uh, podcast introduction in which I sort of tell the story behind how this interview came to be. But as I was listening to it again this week, I thought, I, you know, I'm not sure how much of this is true. He's kind of a a slightly bitter guy, and so sometimes you never know. But uh, it's an interesting, uh, certainly an interesting story. And he passed away this week, and uh, just another guy that that uh, you know whose story deserves to to keep on being told. So this is from 2009. It's a, it's you know six years ago already. Uh, but here it is. You're going to hear the introduction from the original podcast, and then my interview with Harold Batiste. So uh, thanks for tuning in, folks, and I uh, will talk to you soon. Welcome, podcast listener. So I, I decided, I don't know, after like the 10th person canceled on me, and I was left, you know, you play a half hour of somebody's music on the radio program, and then you call them at the number they're supposed to be at, and they're not there, and it's a terrible feeling. It's, gonna, it's just the worst. Uh, so now I try to go to every effort I possibly can, and uh, when I'm in doubt, like I was last night, I called Harold Batiste on the telephone because he had not answered my email. We had commun- I contacted him by email. He's today's guest, by the way. He replied, and uh, he said, sure, I'll be available. Here's the number. So a few days before, and I wrote back saying, great, I'll remind you a few days before. So a few days before, indeed, I send him an email, and he does not answer that email. So yesterday I call him. And I reach him, and he totally forgot about it and seemed a little bit muddled. Nevertheless, I uh, I said, oh, he said, yes, he would be there tomorrow, 11.30, New York time. So uh, I called him this morning, 11.30. Guess what? He wasn't there. I tried his cell phone. He wasn't there. Finally, about uh, 15 minutes later, he calls the radio station back and says, who's this? I said, well, this is a radio station. You're supposed to have an interview. Said, oh, I guess he just hit his you know caller ID and called whoever it was he 
whatever. Uh, he's 78 years old. It's it's sort of hard to hear him. He's on his cell phone. You hear like trucks driving by in New Orleans. But it's a very interesting story, and he's kind of revealing and honest here. And uh, I think it's pretty interesting. So if you're interested in uh, the minutia of a guy who played on a lot of amazing records, and I urge you to check out the archive of the whole program at wfmu.org slash Michael, because you can hear just about a half hour of great Harold Batiste-related music. Uh, if you can do that, check that out. Uh, so anyway, here is this uh, interesting guy, Harold Batiste. All right, it is uh, just my luck. I believe I've got Harold Batiste on the uh, telephone. Mr. Batiste, welcome to uh, the radio. How are you? Where are you? Uh, we're in uh, New Jersey, in lovely uh, New Jersey. Where are you, in New Orleans? Yeah. And you're born in New Orleans in uh, 1931, is that right? Correct. And uh, tell us, when did music come into your life? When did you first pick up an instrument? Oh, pick up an instrument. Well, I didn't pick up an instrument first. Well, I did, I guess, when I was beating, playing with two forks on my mother's furniture. <laughs> Whenever the radio came on, it was with music, and I was give me two forks and stuff. Two forks and you'd ruin your mother's furniture? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but you did study music at Dillard University, right? Oh, yeah. That was long. That was way up. Uh, I started playing. I started when I was in elementary school. I started practicing many. By the time I was uh, at, UNO, I mean, at Dillard University, I had been in high school. Mm-hmm. And I had been in the band in high school. And what kind of music were, was that the high school band playing? Uh, well, high, high school band music, like for, for football games and ah. and things like that. We did a concert. We would do a concert every, you know, at the end of the school year. Gotcha. And were you? Did you think I might be a professional musician? Was that in your mind at that time? Uh, it was beginning to be. I didn't think of it as, as a profession because my mother didn't want me to be a musician. What did she want you to be? Doctor. <laughs> That's what all mothers want, I think. Yeah, I guess so, yeah. Yeah, but you stuck with the music, and was there a, a big demand for live music at that time around New Orleans? Well, it was always, yes, there was always a big demand, but I didn't know that. I didn't associate, it. I didn't associate music with making a living. Hmm. I, you know, I was still uh, caught, to, you know, I was... I was caught between my love for music and and my love for what my mother wanted me to do. Yeah. So, you know, we compromised when I I finished high school and when I went to college and said, well, I'll be a, I'll go into music education and be a teacher. That was, rather than be a musician, I mean, I'd be something decent. My mother thought being a teacher was more decent. Yeah. So you had sort of a, a respectful job teaching music, so you could still uh, do music. But at that time, you were still playing with lots of different bands, including uh, Joe Jones's band, right? Right, yeah. I was playing one. I got in college. And you ended up uh, producing Talk Too Much, his giant hit, right? How did that come about? Well, I was, I was playing in this band and uh, when he got that song from a friend of his uh, we started playing it on, on the gig mm-hmm. 
and we could see that the people's response to it made this sound like a record that people would like. And um, so we, 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 we asked a, a record man in New Orleans to let us use his studio uh, to, make, to, to make this song. And that's how it came about. And was that a record recorded completely live? No, no, we went in the studio and did it. But I mean, is there overdubs, or is it just one take, the band's playing all together and he's singing? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you you played in a bunch of different bands, you were a music teacher, and finally you, you quit uh, teaching out of frustration, I think, right? Just with the school system and the administration, etc.? Right, it was, you know, it was still during the segregation era. And uh, I just couldn't deal with the way they were treating uh, people in the black school. Hmm. They were making, making the music supervisor was discouraging me from teaching how to read music. So anyway, it just was not a pleasant situation. I'm sorry, they, they didn't want you to teach African-American students to read music, but that was a, they did want you to teach white kids to read? Is that right? Well, I wasn't teaching any white kids because it was still huh. the issue. Right. But that's where my, my, my resentment is at. Because I asked the someone, say, are you telling the teacher up at the white school not to teach the kids to read? Right. You know, I mean, I couldn't, you know, and so I had to go for the school board and justify why I didn't want to follow the supervisors. And so I said, no, well, they offered me an option to do that, or I could offer my resignation, so I quit. Yeah, so you quit, and one of the things you did was you went out to L.A. to play with Ornette Coleman, right? Yeah. And at that time, Ornette Coleman was uh, not a full-time musician, right? No. No, he was... He was just, you know, he was working, he was driving the elevator. <laughs> he was an elevator operator. And and how were those gigs? I mean, what did the music sound like at that time? That would be the uh, mid-50s, yeah. right? That was in, uh, yeah, yeah, that was in about 56, 57, <laughs> something like that. Yeah, yeah, that's when I went on telly. And what did your band with Ornette Coleman sound like at that time? Well, it, well, it didn't sound like what <laughs> Because the gig wasn't worth doing too much. Hmm. Uh, so the main thing as far as the gig was, it was just a little once a week gig. We work at a, a little Mexican joint, <laughs> but uh, it was enough to keep me out there. Hmm. And in the meantime, we were really working on trying to get something together in the studio. Right. You're trying to break into the now, uh, you take a demo over to Bumps Blackwell, I believe. Yeah, it was. That's right. That was the thing. We went over. I went over to uh, specialty records because I knew somebody there might know me. I was trying to make the rounds in Hollywood, but uh, it wasn't easy to get into those record companies, you know, like Capitol and RCA and all those big right. companies. But specialty had a big New Orleans presence, so you thought you could. And uh... uh, I thought somebody would recognize my name anyway. The Baptist was very. You know, well known in New Orleans. Right. All the bumps, Blackwell, who was the A&R man there, he didn't know me, but he thought he knew me because my name was Baptiste. <laughs> you know, I was from New Orleans. Well, that worked. So you got in the door, and, I got and he. The door. 
but I was trying to push on that Coleman thing, and Bob's wasn't interested in no right then he was busy he was busy at the time uh preparing a session for Sam Cook. And uh, he asked me to help him with that. He said, Well you you help me get this thing together and I I'll listen to your stuff. Simple as that. And so that song was uh you send me, right? That's what you worked on. Uh, yeah, it, it, that's what it turned out to be. Uh he Actually, he was looking for a B-side. He already had made up his mind what he wanted to record for Sam Cooke as an A-side. You know what an A-side is? Sure, yeah. yeah all right. The song they think will be the big hit. Yeah. And then they have a throwaway song for the B-side, and he was going to use You Said Me for the B-side? Yeah. <laughs> That's what it was. In fact, the, the next day when we were in, in the recording studio, we had finished finished the A-side summertime mm. and Bump said well what did y'all come up with for a B-side and I had this little song uh, you know Sam had, had it was a little song he had written and I just changed a couple of words and it, it wasn't, wasn't many words in it mm. and, but it was just a B-side so uh, we did it and they had four singers that was, that was the, the, the game bust there, there were singers that they had hired for the Bayside, and when and they didn't have any music for them, so I had to write music for them for, for, for them for this song. The actual arrangement for the vocals. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, because they couldn't do uh, as they they were, you know, they were professional singers and they were music. So I, I did that, and then we did it. We did about four or five takes of. Uh, you send me. And in the meantime, the owner of the company, Aru, came in and he heard us, heard what we were doing, and he got angry. He didn't like that. <laughs> so he got Sam Cook sounding like a white boy up here. Huh. And so he fired, he fired the singers that I had that we were going on. And he took over the session. So that, that ended for that, for that day. And he didn't know me because, you know, I, I, I was there because of Bumps Blackwell. Hmm. But, uh, but what happened? So you just started hanging around specialty, and pretty soon after that... Uh, uh, oh, yeah, but he had... They, they, he, see, the next day, he, yeah, he and Bumps had a run-in. Well, no, uh, he offered Bumps. He said, Bumps, if you think this is so good... You can have these tapes in lieu of the orders. He owed Bumps back for about $10,000. Mm. So he made Bumps that kind of offer. He said Bumps, you can either take uh, You Send Me or the $10,000, and Bumps took the record? Yeah, he took the, he took the tapes. He said, I'm going to take these tapes. Wow. And uh, he went, Bumps, Bumps. Immediately went to a friend of his who was starting a record company, that named Bob Keen, and uh, so the record came out on Keen Records. Hmm. And, 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 and so now, our group is left especially with no A&R man and, and no record either. <laughs> he called me up back down in New Orleans and said, man, we were in mourning here because after, after it broke open like it did, 
Well, first of all, they didn't expect the assembly was worth nothing. All right. So, uh, so he called you and asked to he asked you to run the New Orleans office, and at the same time he asked Sonny Bono to run the Los Angeles office, right? Yeah, well, see, Sonny used to come over there. Sonny used to drive a meat truck. Um, you know, that was his job. A meat delivery guy. Yeah, huh. he used to stop by special to try to hustle song. Huh. So that's how I got to meet Sonny. <laughs> that's your your first meeting with him, and you would cross paths with him many times over the years. Uh, you immediately set to work. It was kind of the tail end for Specialty Records, but you did cut some great records with Jerry Byrne, uh, like Lights Out and Art yeah. Neville and uh, yeah. Don and Dewey, some fantastic records. Uh, was it natural to sort of, those are almost all, you know, a fuse between rock and roll and R&B. Mm-hmm. Was, yeah, well, that was... I was I was new at it. I didn't know nothing about that because I didn't come out to Los Angeles to do that. I came out to Los Angeles to play jazz. Mm, right. So uh, so it, it didn't matter to me whether it was rock, whatever y'all want to call it. I'm just I just focus on on the material or the artist. You know, who brought me, who brought me stuff. But, I mean, there's a big difference between Jerry Byrne and Art Neville, both talented guys. What was your attitude when Jerry Byrne walks in with uh, Lights Out? Where, did you think, I'm going to try just try to cut a hit? Do you think that was a big difference? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> you tell me what was the big difference. I don't know what the difference was. Well, Jerry Byrne has a little bit of more of a hillbilly approach. <laughs> I see you think Lights Out was a hillbilly song? Mm-hmm. No, but it's a little... They, they both had that great New Orleans-y kind of shuffle to them. Yeah, it, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was... It was well, I, I, if I had to categorize it, I was just like... Like it was an upbeat rock and roll record. That's all. It was just... Yeah, I guess that that's that's the case. Upbeat, upbeat fast tempo rock and roll record. And I, Art Neville was playing the piano on it, and, and we just made it, you know... A, in my mind, I was thinking in terms of uh, Elvis Presley, mm. uh, not in a positive way, but in a, in, a, in a way that was dealing with what I thought was going on in the market. Yeah, because I realized that the word rock and roll was being opted because they opted rock and roll, and most people now have accepted that. But I came up in the black community, rock and roll. I mean, the first time I heard you was that Joe Turner was Joe Turner. You ever heard of Joe Turner? Sure, sure. Big Joe Turner. Well, Joe Turner was rock and roll way before there was an Elvis Presley or, or, or whatever that guy out of Memphis was. Was it Walk Around or Clock? No, Bill Haley, sure. Bill Haley. Joe Turner had been doing that. A lot of black cats had been doing that. Mm. And that's what I was concerned with. Frankly, I was concerned with the fact that there was another op taking over of music out of the black community and re- recycling it to the white community mm. once they found it that white kids loved it. So I, I said, well, if they're going to play that game, I, I, Jerry Byrne will go over pretty big and that was the case on which my engineer Brown was and Mac the cat who brought him to me was Mac Rebernick he Jerry Byrne used to sing with Mac Rebernick man and uh, I didn't huh? I said I didn't know that so, what about Don and Dewey Farmer John is such a classic uh, 
record. Yeah. And again, it's like partly an R and B record, you know, well, par- partly a rock and jumping record. Don and do it. First of all, it was a, a, a rare find in doing what they was doing because uh, Don was a, an accomplished violinist. Mm. Yeah, he could play, and he could play some jazz on violin. <laughs> Don could. Uh, I forgot which one of them it was. Don or do it? But they were they were more or less really entertainers. And they, they're the ones who, you know, who, who, who wanted to record and do, act, act crazy, you know. I mean, that was their thing. They just overlooked music, you know. Just, so, so they were like a nightclub act, sort of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don and They were, and there again, I'm telling you the same story. They were the prototype for what turned out to be the uh, Righteous Brothers. Hmm. Righteous Brothers used to want to do a Dawn and Do It act. And, and uh, that's what they based it on, what Dawn and Do It was doing. Hmm. So you worked for Art Roop at Specialty from about 57 to 59 or so, is that right? Right. That's just about right. And then you did uh, You Talk Too Much with Joe Jones. Yeah. And that came out on uh, Joe Rufino's label. Uh, Rick. Rick. He had Rick and Ron. He's another sort of guy who was uh, a legendary music yeah. character. You know, there's a new book out called Record Breakers and Makers hmm. uh, that deals with the whole be- history of independent records like, like Chess Records and Aladdin right. and all those small independent companies. And Joe Rufino was one of the New Orleans boys. I mean, New Orleans is kind of, it's like its own country, you know? It's, yeah, uh, it is. And every book I've read about it, Dr. John's book is really interesting about growing up there and about the police and just, uh, it's, it seemed like a crazy pl- place to do business. It was a crazy book, but Mac is crazy. <laughs> Mac Rabinac is crazy. Well, that's good to know. I mean, was Joe Rufino a guy who paid everyone with a statement every six months, or how did that work? Uh, you know, see, all that, all that, none of the independents, maybe Atlantic was the only one that, no, and there was a couple of them who, who really tried to do it legitimately, but most of them were just a bunch of cats who like to dope act stuff now. Back then, the independent record business was not a business. It was a hustle. <laughs> it, was a, it was just a hustle because yeah. the, the major record, record companies like Decca and RCA and so uh, the big companies that uh, they were not. They were not paying attention to uh, that was still called race music. I don't know how. How old are you? I'm 45 now. Well, you might not. You might be. You might be too young to really know how that was back then. But uh, yeah, I was born in '64, so I've I've only yeah, read about. Of, yeah, you sort of missed that. Yeah, yeah, because you had to be around in the, in the 40s and 50s so, to understand. So you talk too much. Well, that makes perfect sense. Uh, you know, just I think the same thing happened with movies, with all entertainment. They sort of ignored, uh, you know, the 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 black community, and all these little guys sort of filled the void up, and there was a huge market. Well, when they moved into, 
lot of them immigrated from, uh, they were immigrants from a foreign country. And a lot of them were, were, you know, recent immigrants, a lot of Italian guys. Mm. They, they were on the lower rung of, of the white community. And therefore, when they, when they lived, they lived in more closer proximity to where uh, blacks lived. And they got to know what blacks like. They got to know the, the kind of things that, and and and, and they realized was it, what that, that that money was being made selling records. They used to sell those records out of the trunk of their cars. They sell them at grocery stores. They would sell them at any place that they, they had a little sign up. They could sell some of those records. But RCA and the, the big companies that didn't even come in the neighborhood, they didn't know. So all those independent labels started like that, and they started dealing with people who didn't understand it. That they just wanted to make a record. They didn't know about money. Mm. Was there contracts in those days, or did you just make the record on a handshake? Either way, it doesn't matter. If a piece of paper didn't really mean that much. It doesn't mean that much. So you never got any money for you talk too much? No. Nothing, yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, I didn't pay for the arrangement. Yeah. Uh, you, you sent a copy of the record to Fidel Castro, right? Because at that time... Yeah, and, that uh, was, yeah, that was funny. Yeah. And he didn't take offense, right? He was sort of charmed by the message you talked too much. I don't think they got it. <laughs> they <laughs> but he sent you back a letter, right? Yeah. Well, it's a part of somebody in the office. It's, you know, in his, people just sent a letter back. That's pretty funny. Uh, you, you you went on the road trying to uh, promote some stuff, and you wind up in New York City broke, and Lloyd Price helps you out, and uh, I believe he introduces you to Maurice Levy at that point, right? The guy who runs Roulette Record, another guy, a uh, well-known, you know, eccentric Look, record company owner. Uh, eccentric, that's the word you use for <laughs> What was he like? What was Maurice Levy like? Well, it wasn't, I didn't deal that much with, directly with him. Mm. See, because I was just a newcomer to the record business. I was dealing more with Lloyd Logan, you know, who, Lloyd Price. Because Lloyd Price was now on Roulette Records. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, Lloyd, Lloyd was rescued, me and Joe, because we, we were both. And, uh, but we didn't know that Joe had, I had already recorded the song once for Roulette, mm. and, and 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 once we got there, Lloyd brought us over to, to Roulette. That's when we found. That's when I found out. Maybe Joe already knew. That's when I found out that we had we had recorded that song. Uh, Joe had already recorded that song once, but Roulette hadn't released it. They were sitting on it. Mm. And of course, when it, by the time we got to New York, it was on on a chart, and so it was between them and Dorothea then. So this is now, we're talking about 1960, 1961, you finally get back to New Orleans and you say, I'm sick of being ripped off uh, constantly, and you start AFO Records, all for one. Uh, it's mostly African-American guys that start the label together, and the idea is, if we're going to make these records, we should make the money as well. Why not, right? 
It sounds like a great idea. At that time, what what was a session fee? How much was a regular fee if you if you played on a hit record? What would you get? It didn't matter whether they hit or not. Right. Have you played on any record? Uh, I, I, I forgot, and I think it was about forty-one, something like that. About $41. Yeah, so it's not easy to make a great living doing that, and other people were getting rich on those some of those records you guys were playing that's, on. Yeah, well, that's what I worked at. I did the math on that thing. I really, before that phrase was really popular, I did the math, and I, I took an example of, like, how very popular saxophone player at that time was Lee Allen. Lee Allen, sure. Walking with Mr. Lee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He used to play on all, all the Fast Domino's records and all the And I figured out if he was, if he got a two cent royalty on whenever he, his, he, he, on one record he could make about 10 bucks. He can make more than he makes in a year <laughs> playing on record late. Yeah. one dollar. He, you know, and I did the math and found out that, and that's what I, I proposed to the guys. I said, man, we make too many records. And she said, you get paid, you're you, you get paid as a for hire worker, which means you ain't gonna get no record, no royalties or not. You just get that salary that you paid then, and that's it. Yeah. Well, that. Uh, well, let me remind everybody, we're talking to Harold Batiste, your founder of AFO Records, and this is WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, and WFMU.org. Uh, you guys had a giant number three pop hit in 1961 with Barbara George's I Know. Great way to start off a company, you know? Not bad. And you had a range distribution with Juggy Murray up at Sioux Records, and uh, it sort of, for a minute there, it seemed like it was all going to go just like you planned, right? Another crook. What's that? I say another crook. Juggy Murray was another. Juggy <laughs> Murray, another crook. Yeah, but an African American guy this time, right? Yeah, he was a black guy. He wasn't American. He was okay. He was a black guy. Uh, he he ran Sue Records for years and years. And what happened? He just didn't want to pay you because you guys ended up doing uh, Lee Dorsey's Yah Yah. In you got to understand, yeah, you. Got- he was he was jealous because I had done Yaya for Bobby Robinson. We had a record label up there too in New York, and, and Bobby Robinson put his record out before he put I Know out. Hmm. But he thought I should have had brought Yaya to him. And is that really the reason why he ruined your relationship and all future hits that could come his way? Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, he, well, he ruined it because he thought. He, I mean, for what I was hearing him tell people that, you know, these boys down here don't know what they're doing. <laughs> and, you know, so I got to take, he took, he wanted to take Barbara George. And uh, he convinced Barbara. When he got Barbara, he, Melvin and I, who's my partner, when we heard that Barbara said she wanted to buy a contract from us, I said, something's wrong. Why does she want to buy a contract? But he had he had he had played the, the real crook game on 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 she was only nineteen years old mm. and uh, she was pregnant. She mm. was had been living in the project all her life. 
and Venice didn't understand no what was happening. This happened too sudden for her. So, but Judge Murray and I shouldn't say all this on the radio. Why not? <laughs> it's the truth, uh, right? Yeah, but it's just what happened, man. He just he, he got her up there and he bought her a Cadillac. Yeah. And she never had another hit. She had a Cadillac, but she didn't have any more hits, did she? Uh, he had a Cadillac on the fur coat that he bought. <laughs> she didn't understand that was her money. She, he was buying her. So. <laughs> And so did you guys ever get paid for Barbara George's I Know record? No, not really, no. No. I mean, in fact, that's what sort of broke us up. Huh. Because, because not only did he not pay us, he had the government thinking that he had paid us. Yeah. So the government put a lien on all of our stuff. Oh, jeez. So you didn't? They were they were looking for taxes on money you never got paid. That's that's right. that's a dirty trick. Are you telling me? <laughs> he was right. We didn't know what we was doing. Yeah. He he saw that we were just naive, you know, boys, young musicians trying and, to be. Yeah, that's. So let's talk about Lee Dorsey. I had uh, Alan Toussaint on here a few weeks ago, and he talked about what a great guy Lee Dorsey was and how much fun it was to just hang around with that guy. Was making Yaya a, a fun experience? Yeah, well, yeah, that was, you know, uh, the only reason I got to do that was because Toussaint couldn't. Toussaint was under contract to Joe Banaschek, and, you know, he would tell the record label. And Toussaint was supposed to be a, a part of a. AFO, but the same thing stopped him from being Barbara George. I played piano on the Barbara George record because Alan Toussaint couldn't do it. Hmm. He was he was on the contract with somebody else, so he couldn't be a part of what he was doing. But that so the same situation happened with Lee Dawson. So he called me up to play it on and do Lee's thing. Hmm. Uh, so you finally you wash your hands of this whole thing and you move back out to L.A. again. We're talking about, about just about 1963, right? Uh, it Somewhere it around there, 64, 65. And you, you hook back up with uh, Sonny Bono, who's, got, who's trying to get this thing going with, with his wife. Right? I didn't hook back up with him. I hooked up with Sam again. I hooked up with Sam Cooke again. Yeah. Oh, and, and were you playing on those last Sam Cooke records then? Yeah. Oh, okay. And then how'd you hook back up with uh, with Sonny? Well, he hooked back up with me when he, when he met Cher. Okay. Uh, met, and he you... Was work, he was working for Phil Spector at the time. For Phil Spector. So I, I came back out there. Sonny was working, you know, working for Phil Spector. And did you get some dates playing with Phil Spector? Yeah. That's, well, he got... Sonny told Phil Spector I was there. And it was, they started hiring me to play piano, you know, on Phil Spector's dates. So which Phil Spector dates are you on? Well, Righteous Brothers. Hmm. There's a couple of them Ronettes things. I didn't ever see, even see the Ronettes. I didn't know who <laughs> And did Phil Spector pull a gun on you, or was he cool, or what was the situation well, like? That was before his gun period. He, he hadn't started pulling a gun yet. <laughs> but I saw him with that at that, that, that time, too, but... He was at, that was at the point where he, I felt, I, I didn't like his sessions because it took too long. He took, looked like, at that point, it looked like he didn't, he, he would spend four days on the same song. Yeah. 
know, but it seems to me like he was, he was either he was a genius doing stuff, or he was down or scared that he, he didn't want to finish. Hmm. He didn't ever want to say, "Okay, yeah, that's it." Just make a commitment and and go with it. Go with it, yeah. So anyway, I don't know what it was, but he was sort of crazy anyway. Yeah, uh, you start playing with Sonny Chair and uh, helping Sonny arrange and really produce some yeah. big hit records, like "I Got You, Babe" and "The Beat Goes On." And uh, uh, one of my favorites is "Baby Don't Go." I love that record. Is that you playing the melodica on that song? Yeah, yeah. What a yeah. Ca- what a catchy. You know, you don't hear melodica in a melodica in a lot of top forty records. You know. Well, just like with I Got Me, you know, you don't hear oboe in them. Yeah. <laughs> so, I Got You, Babe, is it your idea? Let's put an oboe in this song? That's what I always try to, that's what I did, but I know, that's why I had a trumpet solo, a cornet solo on that record. Hmm. I wrote on that solo for, for that record. Hmm. Because all, all, all of the rock and roll people were playing guitars, guitars and, and saxophones. And did Sonny appreciate your contribution to those records? You think? Did he? That's why he wouldn't let me go. He would. Uh, he had. He had. When he got ready to do a television, he, but he. But I must say this: Sonny had a confidence in me that I didn't have in myself. Huh. He really thought I was a genius. And did he pay you? Not much. He, he, <laughs> he, he, didn't, he didn't pay me that much. You know. He, I mean. If you got to come, I, I, I can't compare it what I knew they were making. Yeah. And there was no money. I mean, he, he didn't, if, 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 if I had been like Jack Nitchie. Mm-hmm. You know, he is sure, a, a ranger. Activist, writer who wrote about this in Cream Magazine. So I had been a, a white, a ranger or producer. They would have, I would have known better. Mm. See, I didn't know no better. And in my background, I didn't understand money, that kind of thing. I, I always didn't want to charge too much. I didn't want, you know, guys would get four and five hundred dollars for an arrangement. And I was still getting union scale. Mm. You know, you don't, you know, you, see, to understand that you got to realize that my background, and that's the sick case of a lot of black cats. You're not exposed to what the white community is doing. You don't have those. I don't have any no parents to him who had a big time, nothing going. I never did get to understand what the value of money was. I guess you you learned the hard way. Yeah, I, I had I had a, you know I was you know. So, I, you know, I just never did really make a lot of money. I thought I was making money. I thought I was doing all right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you said that uh, Sonny Bono thought you were a genius. Was What did you think of him in terms of his talent? Obviously, he had this drive to, you know, get off that meat truck and sell some songs. Was he a talented guy as well? Uh, I don't know. Well, it depends on how you define it. Um, how do you... Uh, what do you think? Well, I think... Well, first of all, he was a very smart guy. Mm-hmm. He was deceptively smart. He was dece- and he knew how to, he understood people very well. He knew how to talk with people and make them feel all right. 
that's how he got to be a senator or whatever he got to be. Right. Yeah. I mean, because he always used to see he and him on the telephone with him as a promotion man. He was he could really talk to people in such a way that would make make them like him. And he understood that. That's why he understood that for that for, for son and share to go. Let's share be the smart person. And he would be the joke. The, 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 uh, right. Let him the say, yeah. Oh, Sonny can't sing. Well, Sonny know he couldn't sing. Huh. Who, who was going to the bank? Interesting. Yes, Sonny was. Uh, you played on records by Jackie DeShannon and all kinds of people around L.A. And then, uh, 1967, I think, you hook back up with Mac Rebinac, who's sort of got this Dr. John idea, and uh, you make a couple of great records with him. Uh, just really amazing uh, records that uh, have a really unique sound to them. See, now you hear, your, your radio audience is hearing all the, all the bitter side of me. Because, uh, see, Mac Revenick was a young white boy, drug addict, all of his young life. Not all of his years, but he was about 15, 16 years old. He was headed for nowhere but jail. But he was rescued two or three times from jail. Jerry Wexler would rescue him the biggest time and put him on methadone. Hmm. Saved him. And, you know, that was after I had done Mac. And he wasn't even supposed to be Dr. John. Another cat named Ronnie Barron was supposed to be Dr. Barron. And just Ronnie Barron couldn't do it, right? So they. Even though his manager would not let him do it. There's some early, early uh, Dr. John instrumental sides that came out on AFO, The Fix, The Pot, those kind of songs. They're just fantastic. But this, these records you guys made, Grease, Grease, and uh, Babylon, and then later the Gumbo record, they have a really interesting mix of sounds to them. Yeah. Well, that was, that was a mixture of, of uh, New Orleans and Los Angeles. Right, yeah. It, it, that's the, the difference is when I was making those things in New Orleans, I had all New Orleans people, and we did, you know, I did all kind of stuff with that. Yeah. But uh, when when the, the Dr. John thing came up, only because I had me and Sonny, Sonny and I had to deal with Atlantic Records to produce some things other than Sonny and Cher. Mm. And Sonny brought me two or three acts me to produce but I didn't approve didn't think much of them but if you wanted them I did them but then I found out those were sent to Atlantic and how Baptiste Productions to check up and Atlantic was telling me that they were sending those productions as how Baptiste well I didn't like that hmm. and we had we had we was I began to think well I, I had fooled around with this long enough to know that I should be I should I should be treated better than that. Hmm. He had managers, Joe DeCaller and them cats. And uh they they had tried to start a start the record uh, this little production deal without my without meaning, you know. Hmm. It was just between him and you know. So 
I said, well, I said, if I'm going to, if they're going to send something in my name, I'm going to do something that I want to do. And that's when I asked Mac, I said, man, is there anything you'd like to try to do? And I said, I, I got out, you know, I'm supposed to be able to do this, so I'm going to do this. And so he told me about this, he'd been reading about this cat, Dr. John, and he was going to do it, let, let Ronnie be Dr. John. We were just going to produce it. Hmm. But uh, when Ronnie's manager figured out what it was, he said, no, Ronnie's too good a singer for that. Hmm. And so I thought, I met Maximum, you know, singer, you could do this. Oh, man, I can't sing. No, I can't. I said, well, you know, I have to sing. You know, I have to sing for that. Just, just, just be Mac, that's all. And then I went around and I got, I got to put together all the New Orleans people that I could find in Los Angeles. You know, Jesse Hill and Shine and Tammy Lynn and Shirley Goodman and all the people out there in Los Angeles. So we're going to do this thing with people who know what the feeling of this should be. And that's how that happened. Hmm. Yeah, those are just some fantastic records. We're kind of running out of time, so I need to move the story forward quickly. So excuse me, but you played with Graham Parson on his uh, GP record, which is another sort of milestone record. You played with Tom Waits. You played with The Fifth Dimension. You even did some horn arrangements for the band The Plimsolls, kind of a... Uh, well, man, I, you, what do you find all that shit? <laughs> Uh, actually, you, you don't don't use the S word if you could. <laughs> I, I just researched it all. Uh, you worked on the Sunny Chair Comedy Hour on television. You worked with Marilyn McCoon, Billy Davis on tour with them. Finally, you moved back to New Orleans and started teaching, started the AFO Foundation. And uh, I, I, it sounds like you're a busy guy getting in. Just being interviewed is, it seems to be a full-time job. I know you're, you're, you're busy. And people don't pay me for that. No, they don't. Well, they don't pay me for, to do my side of it either, so. Well, you do it because you love it. That's true. I guess that's why you do it. So, in the end, how does it all feel? I mean, obviously, you learned a bunch of lessons. Are you an angry guy? Are you a happy guy? You've, you've always got uh, the, you know. I'm not, uh, 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 I'm not happy. I'm really not happy. It's not because of money, but the, the stuff that I've had to go through, my, my main job, goal always was about my family. Mm-hmm. I have four kids, and they don't. They 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 are suffering. Not really suffering, but they have, they are less than they could have been had I been more astute about the kind of money I should have made. Yeah, and that's 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 the thing that has me sad at this part of life. Of the anger that's in me is because when I see them in New Orleans nowadays. They're they are putting Mac Rebernick as the guru of New Orleans music. Mm. And, and I said, wait a minute. Now. I, I, the way I see Mac is a drug addict. <laughs> are you still in touch with him? Yeah, I mean, I see him once in a while. And, you know, but I can tell that he's not too comfortable around me. Mm. He's not too comfortable because, you know, there, there's three great uh, compilations of AFO music available. I think they're all on the Ace Records label, and uh, there's lots and lots of great stuff on there, and I urge everyone to go there and uh, to check that out. There's also some great new Harold Batiste music. Uh, you can find that at afofoundation.org. Uh, is there more AFO stuff from the 60s that has not been released? Uh, you know, 
the, the label in Ace Records and in London, mm-hmm. they, they they did three CDs of, of a lot of those unreleased things that I had done back back in the day. Right, three three CDs, and they're all fantastic. Yeah, and I don't know what's going on with that, you know, but all that. See, that's, that's the business has gotten away from me. Mm. Everything is overseas and a lot of this stuff. Yeah, I just don't understand. It's too too cumbersome for me now. Do you too still much. can? Do you still own all that? All the rights? All that AFO stuff? Yeah, I'm supposed to. I don't know. You know. <laughs> Oh. Well, Harold Batiste, uh, I've got uh, what have I got? Old wine queued up here from the AFO executives. You remember? Oh, yeah. Remember recording this track? Sure, you um, used to play that on the gig, man. Just a kind of a, a great little workout. Everybody gets a, a little piece here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We had a lot of fun with that tune, man. Yeah. Well, any parting words before we all get to hear this? Uh, this. Um, oh, let me when you when you when you put that together. Would you send it to me? Yeah, me? I'll send you a CD. I'll call you, I'll email or I'll call you and get your address, but I'll uh, I'll talk to you later today, okay? Service me well, because you ain't going to pay me. <laughs> you want uh, money? Huh? You want money? Sure. <laughs> I need money. <laughs> yeah, me neither. Uh, Harold Batiste, it's been a true pleasure talking with you today. It's a very, very interesting story. All right. And we'll talk to you soon. Thank you.